welcome to Church Experience Online. We're so happy you joined us today. As you watch this teaching video, if you have any questions or need help getting connected, please don't hesitate to reach out by phone or email. Also, our website is the best place to go if you would like to access helpful growth step resources, join a serving team, connect in a life group, get your questions answered, or support this movement financially by giving online. At the end of this teaching video, you'll hear one of our Church Experience Worship original songs. And we hope that gives you an opportunity to worship and reflect on what you learned. Thanks again for joining us at Church Experience Online. Hey, Church Experience family, thank you so much uh, for this privilege of being with you the last couple of weeks. Uh, today, I get to wrap up a series I started two weeks ago called The Good Question. Uh, for me, this is a deeply personal series. I hope it's been helpful and practical for you as you've wrestled through uh, some of the questions that can come uh, when we think about our faith and the implications of the Christian faith. Uh, for me, uh, raising uh, kids in a context where I live, where our faith is constantly being pressed against and challenged, um, means that in some ways I've never left that moment right after becoming a Christian in college where stepping into my context, I was kind of instantly put in a position to really have to know why I believe what I believe. And what it did was foster a confidence that I really deep down inside pray isn't just something that I have, but it's something that, that goes into my kids as well. You see, my desire as a father is that my kids would not grow out of my faith, but that they would grow up in their faith. And there's a huge difference between those two. In fact, just recently, I was asking my daughter, explaining the idea of the series to her, and, and I was saying, you know, what kind of questions would you have about faith? What kind of questions would you have um, just around Christianity as a whole? And she looks at me, and she's like, huh, that's good, you know, and I'm kind of prepared for, you know, did Adam have a belly button, um, you know, something like that. And she's like, okay, Dad, did the people writing the Bible know they were writing the Bible? Like, how, how did we get the Bible? Um, and, you know, like, where did it come from? And I was like, oh, okay, that's definitely not did Adam have a belly button. I was like, Ella, those are really good questions, so I probably should address those questions. And so, um, in some ways, my daughter inspired me, even as I was thinking about this series and what to kind of unpack and the different questions and the broad categories of questions that we bring when we come to the Christian faith, whether we've been walking and following Christ for a while or whether we're sitting on the edges, on the outskirts, looking in and, and maybe wrestling through some tensions around faith and whether or not we should step into the Christian faith. And I think Ella actually has a really good point, that the eight-year-old had a profound question. Because underneath that question, um, I think, is a really essential question that's worth asking. It's a question about, do we and can we trust the Bible? That I kicked off this series really looking at the fact, kind of almost skipping the Bible to some degree, and saying that Christianity is built on the resurrection that historical moment when Jesus walked out of the tomb. But while the resurrection is the foundation of our faith, the Scripture really is the walls of it. And, and so how do we know 
that we can trust the Bible. And where did the Bible come from? All, all those questions my daughter was asking as an eight-year-old, I, I still get asked as a pastor by 38-year-olds or 68-year-olds. And so today what I want to do is unpack that underlying question around trusting the Bible. And I can't unpack every single question you may have specifically about the Bible, but I want to speak broadly to why I believe you and I can trust the Bible. And part of it is to really kind of give you the backstory of the Bible, to let you know how the Bible that maybe you hold in your hand or an app on your phone came to be in the first place. Because if you understand where it came from, it can actually help to answer and build the confidence in it in the first place. To address it, I want to take you to a letter written um, by a man who had closely followed Jesus, a man who had spent time with him and had been transformed by him, and in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, became one of the prime leaders of the church, a man named Peter. Now, Peter, towards the end of his life, um, was writing a series of letters to a, a group of people, Christians scattered through a region, who were really struggling with some external pressures on their faith. Because they had become Christians, what that meant was they were now seen as heretics or blasphemers or um, as kind of outlaws and misunderstood misfits. And because of that, getting jobs, uh, personal safety, jail time, like all of these things begin to press in externally on them because of their faith. And Peter writes a letter knowing they're going through a hard time, knowing they're going through difficult challenges, just like he went through and he was going through. Ultimately, Peter himself would be crucified upside down because of his commitment to Christ. And so Peter writes this letter to address the external pressures. And the way he does it, I think, is really helpful for our conversation. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, because Peter will write two letters, and he will be uh, the source material for the th a third letter called the Gospel of Mark. He says, I have written both of them to you as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Now, this wholesome thinking means kind of sincere, um, intact. There's an integrity to it. He he's kind of pointing to the fact that this wholesome way of thinking um, is that there is no confusion. There is no kind of double speak. There, it isn't marked by doubts that are eroding their faith. He's wanting to challenge them to think about what they're going through in a way that is kind of biblically grounded and consistent with their faith. Because what Peter's concerned about is not the external pressures, but how external pressures reveal the internal pressures. It's, um, I remember when my wife and I, we lived at a previous house um, and we had this beautiful bay window. And one, one night we came home, and we're sitting on the couch, and we heard cracking, crackling, almost like a Rice Krispie cereal was a huge, like a ginormous bowl of Rice Krispie cereal was kind of sitting over by our windowsill. And I walk over to our windowsill, and I open up our blinds, and our entire kind of bay window has um, turned into this fragmented, just um, this massive, huge piece of shattered glass. It was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. It was from this side to this side. 
And initially I thought somebody must have kind of come to our house and tried to break in or throw a rock at our window because of the way it was shattered. Um, it's, it was kind of a different type of piece of glass, so finding a replacement required a specialist. So um, when the specialist came in and, you know, they're removing this huge sheet of glass, I'm like, hey, what happened? Did someone hit it? And he said, um, no, most likely what it was was, um, you know, man, it could have been anything, but most likely you had some... Um, some micro fractures in this glass. There were some uh, almost microscopic cracks that you couldn't see. And that probably that storm we had or um, your house shifting, some, something externally um, put a little bit of pressure on that internal microscopic crack and it just domino effect across your window. And it really looked like someone had taken a baseball bat to this huge bay window and just kind of cracked it all up. And he said, yeah, sometimes um, most people don't realize that there can be microscopic cracks lurking in their windows, and just the right kind of pressure exposes it. And I think in some ways Peter understood this. He understood that external pressure sometimes can reveal what good times conceal, that the faith that we think we have isn't really present, and that the external pressure comes, and it kind of burns away all the wishful thinking and all the I feel good and greeting card level faith, and it just reveals what's left. And so Peter's trying to challenge them to this sincere, um, kind of grounded, truth-oriented faith that he calls wholesome. And so how does he do this? How is he going to inspire them to stimulate them to think that way? He does that in verse 2. He says, I want you to recall so he's, here's how I want to stimulate you to think that way. Here's how I want to challenge you to form that kind of faith. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so he calls us to think biblically, to recall the scriptures. He, when he says the holy prophets, that's a a different way of saying the Jewish scriptures or what we now call the Old Testament um, portion of our Bible. And the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles, that's essentially uh, the teachings of the early church in the New Testament letters. And so he's calling them to think through that way. But here's where I think the tension happens. Um, when we hear that phrase, but we don't have a trust in the Bible, then it gives us, we walk into the situation with some micro kind of scopic cracks already present. And so I'm going to make an assumption for the sake of this discussion. I'm going to assume that this written almost 2,000 years ago is just far enough back that when Peter, who had known Jesus and followed Jesus, called them to think about these words and to reflect on these words, that the words that he's calling them to are words that can be trusted and are true, right? And so the question then becomes, I think, how do we know that these words haven't changed? How do we know that those words that Peter called them to reflect on, to recall, hasn't changed? And to answer that question, I want to take you digitally to um, a place in Jerusalem called the Shrine of the Book. The Shrine of the Book externally, this is, um, its architecture is a very odd-shaped building. Uh, it's meant to uh, kind of house what is this um, 
kind of picturesque inside or metaphorical living experience of a, a scroll. So when you walk in, what you find is this kind of piece of the end cap of a scroll. Um, and the scroll, the, the, what makes this fascinating is that there are two books, there are two pieces, um, historical artifacts inside the shrine of the book that I think helps us to answer this question, how do we know if the words haven't changed? Um, the first is a Hebrew scripture that we call the Aleppo Codex. And this is a, a kind of an image of the Aleppo Codex. The Aleppo Codex is called the Aleppo Codex because it was um, housed for many years in Aleppo, um, which was in Syria, and then has now transitioned in kind of the 40s, 50s, it transitioned into Jerusalem. That, that's got a whole different backstory of its own. Um, and, and it's enshrined at the, book of the, the, the shrine of the book. And so what makes the Aleppo Codex interesting is even though you've probably never seen the Aleppo Codex, even though you've never interacted or maybe even heard of the Aleppo Codex, if you've ever held a Bible, you've held the Aleppo Codex. See, the Aleppo Codex is the oldest kind of full Hebrew Bible um, on earth. It's a Bible that was written around 1000 AD. It was a little bit before 1000 AD. Um, and it was written by a group of people called the Masoretes, which were scribes. Now, what's interesting is the Hebrew word for scribe, these people, is where we get the word for the word count. So in, in the Hebrew word for scribe, it's actually a counter, like, uh, um, like in Sesame Street, the count, where he's like a one, ha, 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 two, ha, 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 right? So that kind of counting. And because the Masoretes, the scribes, were obsessive over counting. See, a, a, a Masoretic scribe knew that there were 400,945 letters in the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. So they knew all 400,945 letters. And one of the kind of system control checks is they would count each one of these letters. That, that's why they were called the counters or the scribes. But they had a level of diligence that goes beyond just the name scribe. So every morning they would get up, they would freshly bathe, they would kind of go through this ritualistic kind of press, process of preparing. Um, they would go in, they would sit down, uh, they would pick up a fresh quill, they were kind of copying an existing text and you know, counting existing texts and verifying the existing text. Whenever they got to the name God in Hebrew, they would actually take out a new quill and freshly write his name. So there was this constant full mental engagement around the Hebrew text. They knew where um, all these random kind of pieces of facts were. They knew that the middle letter of the, the Torah was found in Leviticus 1142 inside the word belly. They knew that the middle word, if you counted all the words and you were looking for the middle one, that when you got to that middle word, it should be the word searched in Leviticus 10.16. They knew all of these details. They knew what and how many words were going to be on each page. And they were able to have absorbed and been diligent. And by doing so, what they did for us is they preserved the Jewish scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing. That level of diligence in detail has come through history through what we now call the Aleppo Codex. The Aleppo Codex, um, when it was discovered, it was revolutionary because it 
contain the fullest record of the Jewish scriptures. And what they found was that the Jewish scriptures written in 1000 AD um, were the ones similar to what we have today. But that's not the entire story. So how do we know that the Aleppo Codex was in fact accurate? This is a thousand years after Peter calls them to recall these specific words. So how do we know that we can trust these words? And the reason we can trust these words in the shrine of the book is there's another um, significant piece of history in the shrine of the book called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You see, in 1947, a, a young shepherd boy chasing, I believe, some goats that had run off was wandering around caves near the Dead Sea, had picked up a rock, had thrown it through um, into a dark cave thinking that maybe he could flesh the goats out, kind of flush them out that way. And as he threw the rock into the cave, he heard, it was a shatter sound. Um, now, I, I have heard the shatter sound, full confession, when I was throwing something as a young boy. And um, I was kind of semi-surprised because I was aiming for a piece of glass. In the desert, you don't expect the shatter sound. Maybe a meh, because you hit something, but not a shatter sound. So when the shatter sound happens, he goes up, and what he finds is bases that are filled with scrolls. It becomes one of the most significant archaeological finds in kind of Jewish record, because what we find in scattered throughout of that, the kind of the cave structure of the Dead Sea area is every portion of every single Old Testament book on top of a ton of other writings from the Essene people, and they were dated 200 to 100 B.C. So 200 to 100 years before Jesus showed up, we have um, pieces and copies and segments and sections of almost the entire Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures. And what happened is when those words were compared to the Aleppo Codex, what they found was it was the same. There had been virtually no change. And so now what we're looking at is the same words that, Paul, that Peter had written was on this text. So when Peter was referring to the these are the words he would have read. This is a, an image of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that these words were the same words on this text from the Aleppo Codex. And that this, this one coupled with this one gave us a sense of confidence in Scripture that when Peter called them to recall the, pro, the words of the prophets, the words that you and I read in our Bibles today are the same words that Jesus would have read and that Peter would have read too. Now, you may not believe those words are true. That's okay. But what's amazing is even if you're, you're here and you don't believe the words are true, what you can know and trust is it's the same words. And so the words that you and I read are the words that Peter read. And so the trust piece, I think we can trust these words. But if you notice, Peter in that passage actually continues. He's, he doesn't just call them to confidence in the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. He also calls them to, to really reflect on the words of the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And that's an allusion to the New Testament. This is the first time in Jewish, and 
like Jewish and Greek text, this is the first time in what we would call the Bible where the Bible shows up. This is a self-affirming statement written in the New Testament letter, which tells us this really amazing fact that even then, to my daughter's question, they knew that what they had and what they were doing and what they were saying was something significant. That the really good question of how can we trust the Bible actually starts to even emerge on the New Testament text itself. And which is, I think, part of the answer to one of the questions that I hear sometimes or that you might hear kind of thrown out on some religious documentary or in some Dan, Dan Brown book, right? The why doesn't the first New Testament show up until the fourth century? That's one of those kind of questions sometimes you hear. It's like, well, where was it at? It goes, to their point, the first New Testament bound kind of text wasn't revealed until, or not revealed, but it wasn't really like, you can't put your finger on it until around the 4th century. But what that ignores is some of the bigger kind of frames of what's happening. One of the things that it ignores is the New Testament itself, right? So if you continue down 2 Peter chapter 3, you see that Peter says in verse 15 and 16, bear in mind that our Lord's patient means salvation. He's kind of been folding this argument. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. So here again, a few verses later, after the New Testament self-affirms, we see Paul referenced by Peter himself. And so here's Peter referencing Paul and saying that what Paul is saying is in fact words given to him by God. So the New Testament writers knew when they were writing that the wisdom, the words they were passing on were coming from God himself. That the apostles had spent time with God, Jesus, and that they knew his words were divine. And that Paul, as he wrote as well, he was also writing with an insight and a realization that the words he was writing was divine as well. And so what ends up happening is we have... Even at the earliest point in the New Testament, we have a recognition that these letters are special. They're different. They, they have some kind of meaning to them. And that the church, even at that point, began to recognize how unique these words actually were. And if you and I were in a context where we recognized the words that we had were from God himself, how would you treat them? Now, I, I have kept every single card that my wife has ever written to me. Going back to 2003, because that's how long we've been dating. Because she's special to me. And if that's how I hold and treat words that are just special to me, it's really easy to imagine how they would have held words that were just special, period. I mean, if God ever sent me a letter, I think I'd preserve it. But it goes on, Peter in verse 16 even emphasizes more. He says his letters, referring to the fact that Paul wrote multiple letters. So, Whereas Peter is 
letting us know he wrote two letters. That's why we have 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He tells us that Paul actually wrote multiple letters to us, which he, in fact, did that we contain today. It says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. This is where it is the most explicit. When people say, oh, well, the New Testament just showed up um, in the fourth century, it was, it was kind of an afterthought once the religious kind of structures had become state because the argument underneath the fourth century is that um, Constantine becomes emperor. Uh, you have the Edict of Milan, which uh, decriminalizes Christianity. And now that Constantine's a Christian, he eventually makes Christianity state religion. And so now it's a state organization and the state needs a book to control people. So it puts together the Bible. And, and while that argument on the face may sound really compelling, what it does is ignores the text that actually brought, that was brought together. Because here's Peter saying just a few decades after Jesus' resurrection, he's already telling and considering Paul's letters as Scripture, right? As they do the other Scriptures. And so Peter and the early church knew that the words that they were dealing with were, in fact, Scripture. And so they treated it the way you would treat Scripture. Now, I've heard people say, well, okay, maybe they understood that, but that still doesn't explain uh, the state religion piece, right? They kept books out, all right? You know, back when the world wasn't a dumpster fire, um, you know, every Easter you would have some kind of documentary like the Gospel of Thomas or, you know, something ridiculous. And the argument is always then like, oh, well, the church kept books out of the Bible. That's, that's the really sinister act. And it's actually not true. You see, the early church recognized what they had as scriptures. But what's important to understand is underneath the surface, so we just read this. Now let's look at Peter's thinking. Peter seems to have a filter for what is Scripture and what is not. Because Paul wrote more letters than the ones that we have. We know that. In the New Testament letters alone, there are letters that Paul refers to that he wrote that we actually do not have today. And the reason we don't have those letters is partially because Peter's thinking and filter that was applied in this season that continued through the first, second, third into the fourth century was um, this three-pronged way of thinking about whether or not text was Scripture or not. And so the three ways that you would consider a text Scripture was, one, who wrote it? In this passage, we have Peter who's been with Jesus, and you have Paul who was this apostle that was transformed by Jesus. And so is the person an apostle or connected to an apostle? Okay, that's the first kind of criteria. And so all the New Testament letters have that direct connection. They're all historically been verified, documented, that we, we have remnants or pieces or copies that go back to within kind of a living generation of when they were written. So we have a kind of a, a holy confidence. The letters were written by who they said they were written by when they were written by them. They're, they're not like something like the Gospel of Thomas, where people would throw that out. Um, and, and it was, in fact, written, the earliest copy that we can find is 300 or 250 AD or whatever the number is. So, one, who wrote it? Is it verified? Two, who was it written to? And this was a really important piece. So Paul, um, 
Everything Paul wrote down was not Scripture. Paul's shopping list and to-do list are not Scripture passages, right? Because they were specific. They, they weren't divine in origin. They didn't have a divine mandate to them. And the way that they kind of looked at divine mandate is, is the words written, are they just written for a specific audience, or is the wisdom contained broader for a general audience? And so while every New Testament letter had an original audience, one of the kind of filters as as Peter's even pointing to here, um, is he's saying, look, some of Paul's letters were written specifically to certain churches and certain individuals, and I know you're not part of those churches, I know you're not some of those individuals, but there's still scripture to you. There's wisdom in it for you, even though it wasn't written to you. And so that, that's that second category of check that box, is that true? And then the third piece is actually um, a little bit more of a challenging thing for us to wrap our mind around. Um, this graph actually visualizes it well to kind of summarize it. So the, the, the writers of the New Testament would kind of look at the text in light of all the other texts that have been written. So when you read the New Testament, one of the things you'll notice is um, Paul especially um, Peter will do this um, in his speeches that we have recorded in the book of Acts. There will, there will be an, uh, a lot of like Old Testament references that come through. Because Christianity did not see itself as a separate religion. Christianity was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. That's why when the Christian church began to spread, it wasn't just the New Testament letters. It was what Peter said earlier. He said it's the, the holy prophet scriptures and the, the words written by the apostles, and Paul. Is this both because Christianity was the fulfillment of the Jewish promise of the promise one. The Jewish, um, Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament had two promises, the promised land and the promised one. And the promised land was a fulfilled promise. The promised one was fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. And so that became kind of this guiding filter for that third piece as does this writing have integrity with all the writings that have come before it because we're part of God's un, kind of unfolding revelation and if if texts were proposed to be scripture that did not fit previous texts then it was it was thrown out and so what you have here on this graph if if you were able to zoom into it this is a beast of a file is actual visual of cross-referencing. So each one of these tiny little white lines are different chapters of the Bible. So every chapter in the entire Bible, both the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, and the New Testament letters, um, that all of that. And each one of these lines, thousands, tens of thousands of these lines, in fact, the more you zoom in, are all going from one chapter of a verse to another chapter and another scripture. And what you can see, even from this big picture view, is how the, the cross-referencing and the integrity of the scriptures aren't just within kind of overlapping chapters of single books, which you would expect because it's the same author. You also have cross-referencings that spanning sections of books or that are spanning the entirety of Scripture, that you have chapters in Revelation that dovetail with chapters in the beginning of Genesis. It is an amazing, comprehensive, uh, cohesive collection of writings and letters that span tens, like um, thousands of years with dozens of writers. Like, it is amazing that this happens. I, 
I have trouble being on the same page with my wife sometimes about simple things like schedules. We have, in a, we have a book here that has a comprehensive cohesiveness across thousands of years, cultures, geography. It's amazing. And that third box was the box that was kind of the final tick for is this in fact Scripture? And that the really good question of can we trust the Bible is where did it even come from? Ultimately, in the end, is satisfied even when one just begins to look at the letters themselves and that we realize that even in the New Testament time, they understood what they had in front of them. And I don't just mean the Bible because the Bible did not create Christianity. What they understood was that they were a part of something bigger. They were a part of something miraculous. Like Jesus did not write the Bible. Jesus is the reason we have the Bible. That Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound into that book. All of that is the reason we have the Bible. That we can trust the Bible both by the event that sparked it and what that event was and the natural ramifications of a resurrected people who believe that their, their, their central figure, someone who had lived and breathed within their generation, was in fact God himself. They saw those words. And the reason it practically did not show up into the 4th century was because it was outlawed the entire time. And so because it had been outlawed, then naturally no book publisher was going to take up the mantle of publishing the book. So it stayed underground. But the words, the letters, they were protected. They were saved. They were copied meticulous by that same type of scribal drive to make sure every single word was coherent, true, and consistent with what was written before. And that the reason you and I can be confident, the reason you and I can be people who trust the Bible, who can lean into that good question, is because what sparked it in the first place. So one of the things that's kind of funny about my little girl is um, she has a phone. Now, she's eight years old, and this is her phone. And uh, I noticed recently as she was getting in bed, that she was smuggling this into the bed with her. And I said, Ella, is that your phone? <gasps> Daddy. Like, you know, you're not supposed to have your phone in the bed. She's like, but Daddy, like, I just wanted to call my BFF and play some games. You see, this is her phone. It's a piece of paper. And those are all her little apps, her BFF app, her game, her ice cream game, her shopping, her music, that's, that's her phone. And I'm sitting here and I'm arguing with her about her sneaking this into the bed. And um, in, in my mind, I'm like, what, what is happening right now? But what's, I think, quite fitting is that for many of us, that maybe our questions or tension around faith um, perhaps is a little bit like this. Here's what I mean. That I, I have conversations with people who are like, man, I just can't believe this anymore. 
And whether because of hard things I went through, or whether because Genesis chapter 1, or whether uh, because of some, some teachings in Leviticus are around, you know, just whatever, fill in the blank. That there's some parts I just don't like. And so, you know, I, I can't believe, you know, if there's a good God, he can't be great. And if he's a great God, he can't be good. Look at what we see around us. And all of those are really valid questions. But a lot of times um, when people say, you know, to be honest with you, I just kind of stop believing. That I actually want to applaud them and say, good. Good for you. Way to go. Great. Because I think you stopped believing in something that was never worth believing in in the first place. See, I think a lot of people that are struggling with faith or they struggle to kind of lean in and accept it or they even have uh, completely leaned away and rejected it, it's at the end of the day, what they're really leaning away from and rejecting is something like this. Now, it may look like Christianity from a distance, but it's overly simplistic. It's not theologically coherent, and it doesn't rest on that central resurrection moment that changed everything. You see, here's my phone, and my phone gives me an ability to connect. My phone gives me an ability to reach out, to learn, to gain wisdom. My phone has power. This one is a piece of paper. And maybe you've walked with Christianity growing up and then you grew out of it. And maybe what you grew out of was never worth growing up in in the first place that there's something better than this. I mean, when people say, well, Christianity has no answer for suffering in the world, I'm like, are you kidding me? The worst possible thing happened to the best possible person. That's like such, that's like the foundational moment of Christianity. God himself, the possible person, was crucified on the cross, the worst possible thing. Like, our faith doesn't run from suffering. Our faith believes our God is big enough to take suffering and do something extraordinary through it. That our God can use anything, no matter how dark, no matter how tragic, that he can use a Friday where he is crucified to bring us a Sunday where he's brought back alive and hope can be born and lives can be changed and addictions can be broken. Like, that to me is... Absurd to say Christianity doesn't speak to suffering. It actually does better than just trying to address the why question, which is nothing more than a seminary answer. It's, it does better than a theological test question. It gives us transformation and hope, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. And that I would encourage you, that maybe you've been listening into this series and kind of arms crossed and you're like, Okay, this doesn't do it. Here's the thing I want to leave you with. Everything I've been building up over the last few weeks is essentially oh, is this kind of central last slide. That I hope that you've heard that the story of the Bible that we've looked at today reminds us that the most important question is not, are you at peace with everything in the Bible? I don't have time for that. I'm not at peace with everything in the Bible. There's some things I don't like. But 
I can be on this stage and my life has been transformed because I believe there's a better question that have we found peace? Have you found peace with the God who so loved the world that he gave his son for us? That when you lean into that, then all of a sudden I can promise you a peace that surpasses the lack of peace you may get as you wrestle through text or as you try to work through the implications of passages for your life. That God himself came for you and me. And that the, he's still in the business of breaking tra- chains and robbing graves and restoring marriages and transforming lives. That dead things can still come back to life today because of him and what he did that day on the hillside in Jerusalem when he walked out of the tomb. And then I would encourage you to not let today go by before you answer that question, have I found peace with God? The God who so loved me that he gave his son for me. And to stop tripping up on the question, are you at peace? with everything in the Bible. And that if that's you today, that even as I pray, I just want to pray for you. And you voice your prayers along with me and maybe even just pray your own prayer to him about, God, I'm so sorry that I've been running away from you and tripping up on all these questions where the most important question is not about the different pieces of the Bible, but the peace that can come to me through you, Jesus. And that I know this church family would love to connect with you, to help you take that next step, whether it's beginning to follow Christ or maybe to step back in to the family and be baptized or maybe to begin to explore Christianity with earnestness. And that for those who have been journaling over the three weeks, I hope that you found, who are already following Christ, I hope that you found your faith strengthened, that you have a little bit more confidence, that you have a little bit more spiritual swagger when you walk into the room. Because what we have is not hype. It's hope. And we are the light of the world because we are his people. We are his body. And this world needs us more now than it has ever needed us before. So let's be confident, hopeful, bright lights. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the opportunity to just journey over these weeks together as a church family. Uh, thank you for uh, the way that you pursued us, the way you bring, you brought life to us, and the way you give us hope. Jesus, I pray for those who have stood on the sidelines, who've stood on the edges, who have allowed all the different questions uh, to keep them from seeing the one central question that matters so much, which is, are we at peace with you? And thank you that that's a question that can be answered today. And so I, even now in their heart, may you give them that answer, that peace, as they cry out to you. And God, for those who've been following you, I pray that we would walk strong, that we would grow up in our faith, that we would not be afraid of any question, knowing that you're the God of light and the God of truth, so we never have to fear anything. 
No lie can stand against you. And thank you, Jesus, for the cross and for the empty tomb that is the cornerstone of our faith. And thank you for the Bible, which is the walls and the halls that inform how we live out this faith. And help us to be found more faithful in it. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Thanks so much for being here today, and thanks so much to Brandon, Jennifer, for letting me be a part of this church family for the last few weeks. I love you, grateful for you, and can't wait to see what God's going to do for you in 2020. Thanks for joining us at Church Experience Online. Please don't forget to check out the website if you'd like to get more connected, learn more, get your questions answered, or support this movement financially. You're now going to hear a Church Experience Worship original song, and we hope this gives you an opportunity to worship and reflect on what you learned today.
strong.